for the week of Thursday, February 14th, 2019. Hey, happy Valentine's Day. This is the Washington State Indivisible podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Coxalow. This week, we continue our coverage of lobbying events happening in Olympia, first with Washington's League of Women Voters. We talk with the chair of the democracy team, Kathy Sakahara, about the group's legislative priorities for 2019, which are focused on democracy and voting reforms. Then we check in with Summer Stinson. She is president of the Education Advocacy group Washington's Paramount Duty, and she tells us about what they have planned for their lobbying day. And we get her take on Tuesday's special election, which was all about school levies and bonds. And finally, we are joined by research team member Jim Austin for this week's Calls to Action. That is all ahead, so stay with us. So as we've been talking about in recent weeks with extended majorities for Democrats in both chambers of the state legislature, advocacy groups have been heading down to Olympia to lobby lawmakers. The League of Women Voters Washington will be hosting their lobby day in conjunction with the group Fix Democracy First, and it'll be on Thursday, February 21st. Kathy Sakahara is the chair of the democracy team for the League of Women Voters, and she joins us now. Hey, Kathy. Hey, Stefan. It's nice to be with you. Well, I'm glad that you're here. And I, I want to talk specifically about what the league is going to be lobbying for. But I want to talk about the day itself first. Uh, so this, as I said, is going to be on Thursday, February 21st, starting at 9 a.m. in Olympia. And it's going to start with a training session. So talk about what people will learn at the training session. Well, we're going to start out the morning with uh, talking about sort of the primary bills or the priority bills that we want them to talk to their legislators. So the the real key part of the day is for people to meet with their own legislators, but we want them to feel very prepared. So we will talk about some key bills and uh, what we would encourage them to share with their legislators about those bills. We are also very lucky to have some very well-respected and uh, well-established, experienced professional lobbyists um, who will be giving us tips and and uh, tips and ideas in terms of how to, in general, how to effectively lobby legislators. Great. And then part of the training, of course, is also hearing from legislators. And when legislators speak to us, we find they tend to be very candid. And frankly, they want us to be successful, um, especially those whose bills we are supporting. So they also give us feedback based on their own experience of what works with them. And it's really helpful to hear that directly from legislators. That's terrific. So, yeah, you're really hearing it from the horse's mouth. So you're going to be talking about the bills that you're going to be addressing. You're going to be uh, hearing from some lobbyists and then hearing from some lawmakers. That all sounds great. So um, is this for specifically for League of Women Voters members or can anybody attend? Oh, absolutely. This is for anyone that basically supports our principles around expanding democracy. And in fact, I I have to really give a shout out to Fix Democracy First. Their executive director, Cindy Black, first approached me um, about a year and a half ago about doing something like this. So we did one last year. Um, which had over 100 people attend, which surprised me. Wow. Uh, I did not officially set that much. So it, it really was the brainchild um, of, of Cindy Black from Fix Democracy First, and they bring a lot of their members and supporters. But we found that we have a lot of people who may not be card-carrying members of either one of our groups, but still are strong advocates of these issues. 
And uh, so a lot of those folks attended last year, and we're going to be seeing a lot more of them this year as well. Well, you know, you talk about people supporting your principles, and one of the ways that most people know you is through the voter guide that you put out. But that is a separate thing, right, and might not necessarily be the best way for people to determine if they agree with your platforms, correct? Uh, absolutely. We do put out, it's, it's actually called 411, uh, which is an online voter's guide. But that does not express our views at all. We simply ask questions and ask uh, candidates to respond to those, and we post their responses verbatim. So we're kind of an interesting hybrid of an organization in that we do voter education from a very objective, uh, nonpartisan position. We're always nonpartisan. We never support candidates, but we do support issues. And uh, although the voter guide doesn't necessarily reference that, people will often, you know, either hear that we've endorsed a bill or we're working on a bill, or and we do also take positions on initiatives. So right. sometimes you know, during the election, people do uh, do see our positions there. Yeah, I know that you have sponsored uh, initiatives uh, in the past, and I, I really do want to get into some of the specifics of that. But before we do, I just want to mention something that I think is really cool. Um, when you're meeting with uh, legislators or their staff, you uh, this is in keeping with the slogan, Democracy Rocks, you're actually bringing Democracy Rocks. Uh, so tell us about that. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that was uh, kind of a, an idea that morphed from one of our volunteers had suggested that we bring little bags of pebbles and call them democracy rocks. <laughs> and the rationale behind this is when you meet with legislators, you often want to have something that you, it's called a leave behind, something you leave behind that will sort of ideally remind them of your issue and your topic. And the goal is to have something cute enough that they put it on their desk or their shelves or on a bulletin board or whatever. So we were sort of brainstorming about that. And so the first idea was a, a little pe- a bag of pebble. And then someone else said, hey, no, what if we have lar- just one larger rock that we paint Democracy Rock on? And boy, I wish you had um, visual here because we've had some very creative artists. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm very intimidated. It's not my style. <laughs> but we, right now we have about 80 painted and we'll have about 130 or 40 when we go down next week. Um, everyone is different, uh, all very creatively um, painted and glitter and a little, sometimes some extra uh, brickbat or ribbon on it, um, very creative rocks. And the, the, the hope is that they will use those as paperweights on their desk, and then someone else comes in and says, oh, where did you get that? And right. then it's a way to start to be a conversation starter about our issues. Well, the podcast itself is not a visual medium, but the website certainly is, and so I will have a link for people to check out at indivisiblepodcast.org so they can see some of those rocks. And if they're going to attend, uh, you can make one yourself. So um, this sort of gets into the issues that you're going to be talking about, but I'm curious how you gauge the impact of your lobbying. Is it through policies enacted? Is it votes influenced? How do you see it? Well, I mean, certainly policies enacted is the ultimate measurement, although, you know, whether I whether or not we can take credit for something, you know, that, that's very hard to measure. Sure. Uh, last year, as you know, the legislature passed five really important uh, bills around democracy, like the Voting Rights Act, 
uh, automatic voter registration, pre-registration, same-day registration, and the Disclose Act. And, uh, you know, I I joked about, you know, starting out our our day by saying, well, last year we had a Democracy Day, and all those five bills passed. I don't think it's a coincidence. (laughs) Well, I don't think it's a coincidence. But I also am realistic that that we cannot, you know, claim full credit to that. There's a tremendous, tremendous coalition of organizations working on those bills. I think you can claim some credit, though. I mean, you really put those uh, issues front and center to your lobbying and got and so much got done last year so much got signed uh, on the governor's desk uh, for you know democracy reform and voter reform and things like that you know i will just ask you generally uh, given all of the the issues that the league does address why you specifically are choosing to lobby for democracy and voting reforms the last year and this year well because I think a lot of people are realizing that regardless of what issue they personally care most about, that if we don't have a functioning democracy, we don't have a chance of having good public policy. If someone uh, is a strong environmentalist, and, and there's a group here locally, Sightline, which has always sort of dealt with environmental issues and sustainability issues, and they've sort of recognized we could educate people on environmental issues and we can lobby for good public policy. But if we have the rich and powerful special interests running the show, we're never going to achieve our goals. If we haven't, we're lucky in Washington. We, we really do not have the anything that I would call voter suppression. But for our democracy as a whole, our country as a whole, if we don't have people have the right to vote, then none of the, I mean, the things that people believe in will not have an impact on what legislators decide. Right. And so for many advocacy groups, they're recognizing that democracy issues are really central. And of course, to the League of Women Voters, that has always been our central issue because maybe people don't realize this. We were actually founded 99 years ago today, as a matter of fact. Oh, wow. Well, happy birthday. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And we were founded uh, shortly after women, uh, after we won the right to vote. And so the League of Women Voters is really um, the same, was founded by the same women who led the effort for the 19th Amendment. And so fighting for voters' rights is, is in our blood. It's part of our birthright. That's great. And, you know, of course, democracy really is the foundation, as you say, uh, on which everything else uh, can be built. It's what makes everything possible at the legislative level. Um, so first, let's, I want to talk about some of the specific areas that uh, you're lobbying for. So first, you, you mentioned automatic voter registration is something that you advocated for last year. And this year, you're looking to have it expanded. How does this currently work and how would you like to see it expanded? Well, the bill that passed last year um, was it applied primarily to the Department of License and only those people who, when they go to the Department of License, are getting uh, enhanced driver's license. So someone applying for an enhanced driver's license has to prove their citizenship. Those people will be automatically registered. And the enhanced Uh, driver's license, I should just say, are the ones that act as a passport if you want to, say, go to Canada. Exactly. Exactly. And those will become, we think, uh, many more people will be getting those because you will need them to fly. 
um, in about a year. And that, that date keeps changing and the deadline keeps getting uh, extended. But we do know that there will be an increase in people getting that. Um, there's also a slightly modified version of automatic voter registration um, through the, the health exchange uh, group. So someone goes to the, um, to the health exchange to get health insurance. Um, they will be automatically sort of transferred to the Secretary of State site, and their their voter registration form will already be filled out for them, but they will have to provide a little bit more information. The goal of, of automatic voter registration was always to have more state agencies involved, and the primary ones are um, health and human services, because that's those are the agencies that most deal with the people who are most disenfranchised, whether it's low-income, communities of color, uh, immigrants, or people with um, different language that they use. Uh, those groups um, have, are going to have the greatest impact in terms of automatically registering voters. The, the bill that passed last year required the agencies to present to the governor um, a plan for implementing it. So it did not require them to start implementing it. There was a lot of pushback that it would be complicated, it would be hard. Um, but the thanks, we really appreciate Governor Inslee said, no, you will implement it, but tell us what your obstacles are, tell us what your plan is. And so we are in the process of working with the coalition to expand automatic voter registration to more uh, agencies. And that probably will not be done through legislation. It will really be an administrative rule that each of those agencies uh, will adopt based on the legislation that passed last year. Understood. Okay, yes. Yeah. So you're really looking at expanding the community reach for people who are often disenfranchised uh, or more commonly disenfranchised. So that, I think that's great. Um, let's talk about campaign finance. That's another big bullet point. Uh, I know that you're pushing for public financing of elections. Um, you sponsored a, a voter initiative about this in 2016, but it didn't pass. So talk about specifically what you're lobbying for this year. Is it similar to that voter initiative? Yeah, uh, it, it is similar to to that initiative, and I and I will say that we have not yet um, been successful in having actually a bill introduced. But we are talking to legislators about that, and we know that that is not something that um, is going to happen overnight. One, uh, we, you're right. The league was very involved in 1464 um, in in 2016. And one of the things that we've heard, and we think it's one of the reasons that it failed, is that the democracy vouchers in Seattle had just been implemented, and they, but they hadn't really been used. What, quickly, just uh, for those who don't know, tell us what democracy vouchers are. Oh, I'm so sorry. So in the city of Seattle, um, they implemented, but it was used for the first time in 2017, two years ago, an option where every... Uh, citizen, every registered voter, excuse me, every registered voter was sent uh, a number of vouchers that they could use almost like cash to give to candidates. Uh, and then the candidates could use that to fund their campaign. So it was a way of setting up from having small donors that would enable people who don't have rich friends, who don't have deep pockets themselves, who are not willing to take major corporate, uh, major donations from special interests, would allow them to raise money literally by going door to door and asking registered voters for their 
not only their support, but they can provide them with these uh, vouchers. And who actually fulfills the money uh, for the voucher? So, so the money actually comes out of the city budget. Okay. So it is part of the city's budget. So it is it is true public financing. And, you know, many, many advocacy groups and think tanks and scholars say as long as we cannot rein in special interest spending, the, really the only way we'll ever have true democracy is by having some, some kind of public uh, financing of elections. And other states do it through a tax rebate. Um, I think in New York, if you give a $100 donation to someone, you get that money back from the state. So there's various ways. We don't have an income tax, so we can't do it that right. way here. Well, so then specifically, what are you pushing for this year? So we're we're talking to folks this year about implementing something similar to what Seattle has. Um, possibly the most likely thing is starting out small, because again, these these ideas take time to uh, kind of sink into people. Sure. And it would be, for instance, an initial one might be public financing just for judges, because although we want everyone, every elected official to be objective. You really, really need uh, judges to be as objective as possible. And that's an idea that's been introduced a few times in the past. Um, It hasn't made a lot of progress, but we are continuing to raise that issue, highlight um, the potential. And we are optimistic. We hope that within a few years we can have this passed by the legislature if not, there certainly is consideration that we go back to the uh, to the citizens now with more evidence of how well public financing has worked in Seattle and with a sort of a more fine-tuned approach. And we do know that as frustration with government grows, the interest in public financing also grows. Well, it's good that you're playing a long game on this because this has certainly been kind of an intractable problem in American politics. And, uh, yeah, so I we, I think every listener wishes you Godspeed on that. Um, you were also pushing to end what you call the pack shell game, and this has to do with revealing who pays for campaign ads. So talk about that. All right. Well, right now, um, when you someone runs a campaign ad, an independent expenditure, they have to fight. Um, the top five donors. And people probably recognize that sometimes they will see an ad and the top five donors will be something like Washingtonians for good government or moms against child abuse or these very nice sounding, wholesome sounding organizations. But you don't know who's giving them money. So what happens is if, if I'm a some kind of special interest, rather than wanting my name on that ad, as this is being paid for, for by such and such an industry, um, I give that money. I form a pack. I give the money to the pack, and then that pack spends the money, and I don't have to be uh, tied to that. I don't have to be um, connected in that campaign ad. To it's not made public, is what you're that. saying. Right. Well, and in all fairness, it's technically public through the PDC, to, excuse me, the Public Disclosure Commission. There are reports 
for most people, there's a reason we want it on the ad. We want anyone who hears the message to also know who, who pays for it without having to dig through a massive database. Right. Um, so what, what this bill would do, what we refer to the pack-to-pack bill, is rather than saying, okay, this ad was paid for by Washingtonians for good government, we would go back to Washingtonians for good government and say, who gave them money? And so the ad would actually have to list not other PACs, but would list um, either corporations or individuals who actually gave the money. So it's who's actually paying for the ad. So that's full disclosure, and uh, ultimately that might actually discourage uh, a lot of people from putting money behind these ads because it would expose uh, it would expose them. So uh, that's I, I think that's a step very much in the right direction. I will have a link to the full position paper that you authored, um, and I imagine that people will learn more about all of this at the training session. Yes. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The the pack to pack bill is uh, is making progress, I believe, and I'm sorry I don't have it off the top of my head, but I believe it's it's in the rules committee in both houses, which is the last step before actually being voted on. So there's a number of steps every bill has to go through. It has right. to be approved by a committee, um, and these are uh, these are making rapid progress, which is very exciting. Well, if people would like to attend, again, I will have uh, full information for everybody at IndivisiblePodcast.org. The Washington chapter of the League of Women Voters Lobby Day is happening on Thursday, February 21st, and Kathy Sakahara is the chair of the democracy team for the Washington League of Women Voters. Kathy Sakahara, thank you so much. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking with you. And another group that will be having their Olympia Lobbying Day is the Public Education Advocacy Group, Washington's Paramount Duty. And joining us again is the president of that organization, Summer Stinson. Hey, Summer. Hello. How are you? I'm good. So uh, before we talk about Lobby Day, I I do want to get your take on the passage of the two Seattle school propositions in Tuesday's special election. So voters approved Propositions 1 and 2, which will collectively raise over $2 billion in revenue for various needs in the school district. Um, You said on Facebook afterwards that these levies are the first step in saving Seattle public schools, but that the district is still facing huge deficits to the tune of about $40 million. So I think what a lot of people may be wondering is, given the new funding and the fulfillment of the McCleary decision uh, a year ago, uh, how and where is the district still coming up short? Well, and that's a really good question. The uh, state legislature two years ago, um, facing a government shutdown right before the government was going to shut down on July 1st, 2017, uh, made this last minute kind of middle of the night deal uh, with the uh, Senate that was controlled by Republicans and the House that was controlled by Democrats at the time. And they um, put in as one of the parts of that deal an arbitrary cap on school districts levies. And so even though the Seattle voters have been incredibly generous and supportive of public education and students and teachers and librarians and counselors and voted um, in this tax revenue over the next several years, uh, Seattle Public Schools is not going to be able to collect all of the money that has been voted in by Seattle voters. And that's because of this arbitrary cap that the state legislature put into place two years ago. It then, that arbitrary cap actually has already been affecting us since January 1st, 
2019. So our levy amounts that we've been able to collect have already dropped. And so Seattle Public Schools is not able to collect all of the money from the last levy that the Seattle voters voted in or even this upcoming one that passed with great numbers on Tuesday. Well, so would undoing this arbitrary cap, would that then release the money and Seattle schools would then have enough funding for the sorts of things that you would like them to have funding for? Yes, and that depends on whether there's a different cap that's put into place or completely releasing the cap or whether it's a percentage um, or a specific dollar amount per student. There's many different things that the legislature has been looking at, but quite honestly, I haven't seen the sense of urgency coming from the state legislature that I would expect knowing that we're going to have these significant drops um, in funding already. Uh, for Seattle, for example, this means that uh, we would lose, in addition to lots of other positions, we would lose uh, librarian positions, would drop to half time at high schools, K through eight, and also middle schools. Mm. And so my middle school son's librarian has been one of the ones tweeting up a lot about um, this scenario and what it means for her and her students. Um, of which my son is one, and her name's Rebecca Weinkoop, and she's been doing a really good job of bringing this um, funding crisis, which is $40 million, to light and explaining exactly how this would affect and impact students. Yeah. Well, and you talk also about how it could uh, potentially affect uh, being able to hire school nurses, custodians, uh, special education needs, uh, even things that are near and dear to my heart and were such a big part of my education, like music and art. Um, Proposition 2 raised $1.4 billion for construction and maintenance needs for the school district. Is that money going to be available to the school districts? Yes, that okay. money is available, and that money um, is uh, a, a straight-up continuation. Um, the other money, the operations money, actually, Seattle Public Schools asked for less authority, less levy authority, if you will, than they had the last time the levy was on the ballot. So that was actually a reduction in in a request uh, per student, or sorry, per thousand uh, dollars. Uh, for your property taxes, that was a reduction. And the capital levy was just the same, and that's going to be able to be collected. Which is important, obviously, because infrastructure for schools is like you want your children to fundamentally be safe in the buildings that they're going to be you know, taught in. So that's good news, even though it's, as you say, at a lower rate. Um, all of this is part of what I imagine you're going to be lobbying for when Washington's Paramount Duty visits Olympia on the 27th, um, which I should mention was rescheduled because of the weather. Um, as we've already mentioned, you are going to, uh, I think, be working to convince state legislators to reverse the spending caps that were imposed in 2017. Um, you're also going to be asking to change the threshold for school bonds. And this is something that is currently happening with the election uh, with the propositions in Renton. So it is my understanding that they have voted uh, to pass the levy, uh, but they require a 60 percent supermajority to pass the school bond. Am I getting am I getting all that right? 
Yes, they, right now, school construction bonds in Washington state require two things. The first is a 60% supermajority. And so there are several bonds that are not passing in the state of Washington right now that were voted on on Tuesday because they haven't met that 60% threshold. Now, just to be clear, the levies pass with a simple majority, correct? Correct. Okay. Levies pass with a simple majority. Bonds require... First, this 60%, and then second, which is what's holding up Renton right now, is to validate the results. Uh, you not only have to win with 60%, you have to have a minimum number of voters who voted in the election to be able to validate those results. And that's what Renton is missing right now. And that's based, those that minimum number formula is based upon the number of voters that came out in the prior November election. And because there was such a great surge, which is fabulous, yeah. of voters in November 2018, unfortunately, that actually has now come back to hurt Renton in this bond election because they can't meet the threshold. They were down by about 7,000 voters, I believe, on, um, on election night. So even though they have just above the 60 percent and they don't have enough voters. So in order to change something like this, is this something that can be changed by the legislature itself? And, and Yes. OK. And is do, do you know if there is a bill in place that would institute this change? So last year, there was a 55 percent bill rather than a simple majority bill. I believe it's in play this year. I um I don't know if there's any simple majority bill that has been. Um, but this is something you'll be lobbying for. Then. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And, and honestly, so we, what it does require is a change in the Constitution. So first, it would require the um, a two thirds vote through the legislature. And then I believe it has to come to the voters. So even though the legislature has the first um, step in that, uh, it, it does require a supermajority within the legislature. And then it would come to the voters. Uh, and so my <laughs> my thought and my group's thought, and I think a lot of teachers and school districts also agree, like, why go through all that for a 55% majority that we don't have as right. a requirement in anything else? Let's have it the same that we would send a legislator to Olympia, which would be with a 50% simple majority. Well, this and, and many other things uh, you're going to be advocating for uh, in Olympia when you head down there on the 27th. Uh, and I will provide a link to listeners so that they can get a full listing of the things that you're going to be advocating for. Just to be clear, anybody can join your group on Lobby Day. They don't have to, say, be uh, a member. There's no requirement for them to join you. Correct. Absolutely. Anybody is welcome to come. We're going to be talking about school funding. A lot of our um, goals, which is to increase the funding for counselors, librarians, nurses, social workers, class size reductions, special education is a big one that we are lobbying for. Uh, all of those are actually align very well with the PTA. Um, the PTA has been having an advocacy week. Uh, they had to cancel their lobby day. And so we are hoping that if uh, PTA members who weren't able to go down due to the snow this week um, wanted to join us too. Anybody is welcome to come join us as long as they're advocating for more funding for public schools through progressive new revenue sources. All right. Summer Stinson is the president of Washington's Paramount Duty, and their lobby day is happening in Olympia on the 27th. Summer, thank you so much as always. Thank you.
And it is time for this week's call to action. And joining us in studio to talk about it is research team member Jim Austin. Hello, Jim. Hello, Stefan. How are you dealing with Snowmageddon? I will, uh, I will ask you. Because you're my well. neighbor, I, I figure right. I should. That's right. We're right on the same street. I've got about uh, still a foot of snow. And yeah. The front and haven't been able to drive out. So it's I walked a down to your house. mess. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So we have been focusing recently on state legislature issues here on the show. Um, and of course, with the expanded majorities for Democrats in both chambers, it's very timely. So let's start with a bill that is aimed at establishing something that we've talked about a lot here on the show, which is universal health care. So this is sort of a paving bill. This is Senate Bill 5822, which we are asking people to advocate for. This would provide a pathway to establish a universal health care system for residents of Washington state. So as I say, this is preliminary. Uh, talk a little bit about what this bill does. Uh, the bill establishes a board, uh, basically, to come up with a plan uh, for moving us to a single-payer system, a plan that would uh, provide for the funding of that system through uh, taxes and other uh, revenue means, uh, and then make proposals to the legislature uh, to implement that plan. Okay, and this is paving the way toward uh, 5222, which is the initiative that uh, I believe 1600 was roughly based on, and it's also something that the group Whole Washington advocates for, correct? Uh, that's correct. There so, is so what a, does it do, 5222? Uh, what 52, would it do? 5222 is itself a bill that would establish immediately a single-payer universal health care system. It's modeled, as you noted, on uh, proposed Initiative 1600, uh, which failed to get sufficient signatures collected uh, in 2018, so didn't make it on the ballot. But it's a very robust, very well-thought-out plan for a single-payer universal health care system in Washington. Now, is this the public trust? Yes, it would establish uh, public uh, health trust. It would, with very detailed provisions, provide for a variety of revenue sources to pay for it, uh, provide for uh, negotiated uh, fees with providers, uh, would also provide for pharmaceutical coverage through the single-payer system. It would cover everybody in the state, cover minors up to age 19, uh, and would provide a system for subsidization for people at the lower end of the income scale. Everybody would end up being covered. For most people, uh, the projection is uh, it would result in a significant reduction in their health care costs. For employers, it would result in a significant reduction in what they're paying today for health care. Which was a sticking point, I think, for a lot of people that they, particularly small business owners, felt that they were going to get hurt by some of these proposals. And so this is something that would potentially work for them. But as we say, um, we have to clear a hurdle first. And so 5822 is what is on the board right now. How can we show support for that? Uh, Call your legislature, uh, urge them to support it. Uh, If you go on to the Washington State Legislature's webpage, it's very easy. That is ledge.wa.gov, and I'll have a link for that for listeners at uh, invisiblepodcast.org. It's a wonderful website. Uh, You can go to bill information, click on bill information, Uh, just put the number of the bill in. You'll see where it is in terms of committee. You can then go find a list of the committee members, uh, see if your legislator is on that uh, committee. In the case of uh, 
the House. It's the uh, Health and Long-Term Care Committee and the uh, in the Senate, I believe it's the Health Care and Wellness Committee. All right. Well, so then let's shift over and talk about immigration. Uh, and I think that's timely uh, in light of uh, Trump's wall and immigration showdown. Um, and so we have on the table the Keep Washington Working Act. This is something that we have talked with Senator Lisa Wellman about here on the show in the past. This is Senate Bill 5497, also uh, known as HB, House Bill 1815. Uh, so first, remind us what this bill is and what it does. What it does is it creates a Keep Washington Working statewide group that would work with the Department of Commerce to expand immigrants' career pathways, uh, provide, uh, require state agencies to provide services without regard to a person's citizenship or immigration status. It would require state agencies to develop and implement secure information systems and personal privacy protections when people use state services. Uh, including schools, uh, basically preventing state institutions and schools from being used as a data source mm -hmm. for uh, people who are looking to grab uh, uh, people here on in undocumented status and ship them away. ICE is, is who yes, you're talking right. about. And basically it keeps Washington from using local resources to do ICE's job. That's correct. Um, so... It is being heard in committee this week uh, in the Senate. That is the Law and Justice Committee in the House. It is the Civil Rights and Judiciary Committee. And once again, you can go to ledge.wa.gov to see if your senator or House member sits on these committees. And if they do, we are asking people to contact them in support of this. Okay. So finally, uh, this week, following a number of sheriffs reporting uh, in the state that they are refusing to enforce 1639, this was the uh, gun safety voter initiative that passed in November, state lawmakers have introduced HB 1157, which would allow local law enforcement to selectively ignore parts of past initiatives that they don't like and to set off alarm bells for a lot of us. Uh, you actually don't feel that this bill poses a realistic threat, and you have several reasons why, so uh, illuminate us. Well, uh, under our state constitution, local governments have the ability to uh, enact legislation for a variety of uh, things, but always under Article 10, Section 10 of the Washington State Constitution, uh, those must be consistent with quote-unquote, general law, which our courts have uh, held means they must be consistent with state law. So as things stand, local jurisdictions don't have the power to adopt legislation uh, that is inconsistent with general state law. They don't get, so it's to, unconstitutional, they don't get to opt out. Right. No. So what this bill does is it says uh, the local legislative body, uh, the legislative body of each county, the county council or county commission, in uh, each case would have the ability to elect, uh, basically opt out of any initiative measure. And it doesn't just say future initiative measures. It says past initiative measures as well. So that's the sticking point. Well, and but it makes that uh, its provisions would be effective only if a companion piece of legislation, which the same uh, legislator, which is uh, Representative Brad Clippert of Eastern Washington, uh, is proposing, uh, which would amend the state constitution to 
basically allow the same uh, sort of opt-out on a county level. But this would cut both ways, is what you're saying. Uh, Well, first of all, it would cut both ways. If you look at things that are being proposed right now in terms of initiatives, there are a few Iman uh, tax initiatives, uh, reducing car tabs to 30 bucks again, requiring either super majorities or uh, public votes to adopt local taxes, banning certain types of local taxes from being uh, adopted. There, there's even an initiative to repeal certain uh, state and local taxes. There's and so one... then that would basically give state, county uh, legislators the choice whether they wanted to uphold those or not, correct? Right. There's even an initiative that would prohibit state and local income taxes. <laughs> well, now... Uh, supposedly under this, a county could opt out of that prohibition. You're also talking about school attendance being compulsory since 1924. You think about about the things that we have adopted by initiative, compulsory school attendance. Uh, There are things that conservatives like, uh, I-200, which basically precludes public institutions like the University of Washington from having affirmative action programs. Hmm. Now, supposedly, I guess you could opt out of those. But as a practical matter, this bill is going nowhere. Uh, I doubt if it's going to get out of committee. It would require a two-thirds majority. Uh, The the, uh, Constitution amendment would require a two-thirds majority. That's not going to happen. And that's not going to happen. Then it would have to get on the the ballot and be uh, adopted. So it's it's just not something we ought to spend a whole lot of time worrying about, in my opinion. All right. Well, I'll sleep better at night. So um, now you're an attorney, and um, I imagine that you then see these sheriffs being ultimately forced to comply. State AG Bob Ferguson has weighed in on this, saying he has no patience for any of it. Is he the enforcement mechanism here? Uh, Probably not. His open letter, which he uh, published a couple of days ago on this subject, warned local sheriffs that uh, they face potential liability if they don't enforce uh, I-1639, which is mm. the initiative, uh, which was the gun safety initiative, right. that requires enhanced background checks for uh, semi-automatic weapons, increases the age limit for those. It's sheriffs and chiefs of police that are involved in those uh, background checks. Mm. Uh, a seller of uh, that kind of weaponry is required under the initiative— uh, which is now law, to obtain basically a, a a written assurance from the local chief of police or sheriff that a person is not disqualified uh, from owning uh, the weapon. And they can't sell it until they get that. So I'm not sure exactly what non-enforcement means. Uh, by the way, uh, a gun shop owner who violates the statute? That was what I was going to ask. That's a Class C felony. Right. Okay. So then they're ultimately on the hook. And right. So they, and they may be self-enforcing at this point it, it in light be. of that. It may be. And, uh, of course, the point that the attorney general made is that if a weapon is sold uh, because the uh, sheriff or chief of police doesn't do their job and somebody is injured or killed— that local jurisdiction is going to be subject to a civil claim yeah. and potentially a very big one. So it's not a very smart idea not to be enforcing the thing. He pointed out that he opposes the death penalty, but as always, until there is a court decision that says it's unconstitutional, he's beholden to 
enforce state law in, in right. that respect. And he made the, the point that particularly when you have an initiative that passed with 60 percent of the electorate supporting it, it's not the position of local law enforcement officials to substitute their judgment for constitutionality right. uh, for those of the court. Yeah. Uh, A.G. We, Ferguson doesn't get to do it, and no. so therefore uh, local law enforcement should right. not get to do it either. All right, Jim. Well, thank you so much for coming and filling us in on this, and we'll talk to you soon. Happy to do it. And that's going to do it for this week's show. For links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there, too. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests, Kathy Sakahara, Summer Stinson, and Jim Austin. My special thanks to Robin Gettleman. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.